You may be wondering, what does Job, sitting in his large home, receiving bad news about his other homes, while God and the adversary argue, have to do with the wilderness? Throughout this series, we have lodged ourselves mostly in wildernesses. We have been to the desert, to the riverbanks, the mountains, the forest. And we will today make our way to the grasslands, the prairies of the American interior and the tall grass of the steppe of the scrubby grassland between the Mediterranean Sea and the deserts of Israel. But by way of getting there, we must travel for a few minutes through the land of Uz. And as Danny identified for us, this is a different pronunciation in Hebrew uh, from the word Uz. A semi-fictitious, vaguely known land where Job dwells. A land whose name can alternately mean wooded area or to take advice both of which give us a lens on Job's story. This land has a physical location, at least sort of, and it's mentioned a handful of times in the Bible, but it is outside the promised land. It is not a land where God's people dwell at any point. It is full of strangers and religiously ambiguous quasi Yahwehist groups. Which is to say that Job believes in God, and it is the God we know and are familiar with. But it is not a given that all of his neighbors do. And Job also believes in this adversary, which is not necessarily a given for the people reading this story. This adversary is what many of us grew up calling Satan, Ha-Satan in the Hebrew who appears in conversation with God and is something less than the pure evil we were taught that Satan represented. The adversary is more devil's advocate than actual devil. Many of us were taught that Job is a story that wrestles with the question, why do bad things happen to good people? And today I want to suggest that there are other questions that Job offers to us. Job is not purely or easily a story about theodicy in the modern sense. The earliest readers of Job were not asking, why do bad things happen to good people? Or they were at some point, but when they asked that question, Job was not the book that they read. When they asked, why do bad things happen to good people? They read Ecclesiastes because Ecclesiastes is the, question, is the book that more clearly wrestles with that question. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. But perhaps we can visit Ecclesiastes another time. Job at its center hosts a different question for us. And we hear that from the beginning, from his introduction in verse one, that Job is the story of a settled man with a plot of land, with some sense of private ownership at some level, 
who has 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 pairs of oxen and 500 female donkeys and a vast number of servants. From its introduction, this book announces a very different way of life than what Jacob lived through when he roamed the vast desert as a nomad or the hitchhiking life that Jesus took up to spread his gospel. And most of the original readers of this book were nomads or were recently settled people with nomads and travelers in their blood with grandparents tucked into rocking chairs on the porch, complaining that in my day, we never stopped moving toward the horizon. But Job's life is the life of a man who knows a particular place, belongs to it, and raises his livestock on a sprawling mix of grassland and desert. Job is the way that people wrestle with the idea of belonging to a particular patch of land. Humans were nomads before they were farmers, hunter-gatherers before they were cultivators. And I think for those of us who have the ability and choose to settle in multiple parts of the country, to, snowboard, to snowbird in Florida or Arizona, that this choice may be deeply rooted in the human pattern of migration. That the idea of settledness is at some level a new concept or at the least is not the only way to be human. We are a species built for migration and adapted to staying put but both of these threads exist in our bodies. And the Bible traces the emergence of this new way of being human, of the possibility of staying put. It wrestles with those two worldviews, the idea that humans were built to travel and the idea that humans were built to settle. And these two worldviews tend to result in different views on God. Nomads need a different God than farmers. When I was young once, a family of American missionaries to Ethiopia returned from the country on furlough to tell us about their lives and their work. And they described Ethiopia, the way they lived there, as a land where God was ever close. Because there was no reliable car transport where they were, because where they were, they had to carry someone for, on a wagon for miles to the hospital. Because the power could go out at any time. They said, you were always aware that you were dependent on God. And that's what Americans forget living in America. With our convenient light switches and refrigeration and money and oil-powered vehicles on paved roads. We forget that we are dependent on anything other than ourselves. And this, I believe, is the question that Job seeks to answer. Can wealthy, settled people really have faith in God when their lives are constructed in such a way that they don't need God? When the adversary approaches God, the adversary asks, does Job revere God for nothing? 
Haven't you fenced him in, his house and all that he has, and blessed the work of his hands so that his possessions extend throughout the earth? This question is an interrogation of Job's motives. Can Job truly have faith in God if Job has never needed God? If he always has camels to sell and pay off a debt, his sheep when the oxen fall sick, a line of women waving their dowries to marry his sons and suitors bringing gifts to marry his daughters. Does the man know faith when he is the very model of American self-reliance? The taking away of Job's material goods is a test of his faith. Would Americans still believe in God if they had no electricity, no one to clean their houses and deliver their takeout? Or is our belief in God subject to our own cleverness? Is God the force that underscores our own cleverness? Or is God what we reach out to when our cleverness collapses? Is God a benevolent provider who makes our malls open and our pimples fade? Or is God a mysterious and slightly dangerous force who, nonetheless, accompanies us through bitter nights and desperate need? These are different types of gods. And this is the difference between the God of the farming people and the God of the nomad people. As Richard Manning describes it in the book Grassland, a marvelous story of the North American prairie. Farming is an activity that requires fidelity to cycles, a contract that work will be done in spring in return for God's fulfillment of his sick contract each fall. Manning goes on, it was, that, it was the contract that Christianity had perfected by the late 19th century to a doctrine that turned to the needs of the hyper-civilization, industrialism. The contract had become the work ethic. And this is in contrast, in contrast to the life of the nomad, the God that Jacob worshiped as he limped across the steppe with his many cattle and his family. His wealth pales in comparison to Job, as our wealth pales in comparison to the DeVos family. Jacob is wealthy, he has many goats, but his wealth is nothing compared to that of Job. And ultimately, Jacob is a nomad. He has a fundamentally different relationship to the land. He is used to moving. His wealth is bound up in his travels. Job is a farmer. And Manning describes this difference, the difference of the nomads view, particularly the nomads of the Israeli scrubland or the nomad of the American prairie before it was shorn and civilized. The grass was the creation and favored child of the weird God of this weird place and only it could survive. If you have ever been to a prairie there is a sense of vastness, of looking out and seeing only shoulder high grass as far as you can see. And that is a different type of wilderness. 
one that has largely disappeared from the landscape that it occupied across Central North America. When white settlers arrived in the prairies of North Dakota, Kansas, Iowa, Manning says, the relentless space swallows the European God. Think of the story of Laura Ingalls Wilder in the blizzard. When Pa ties a rope to himself so he can walk through the whiteout snow from the house to the barn without being blown away. Tall grass prairies are daunting wildernesses. And yet, they were perhaps the first wilderness to be destroyed in this country the first wilderness to be only almost completely annihilated. We have had a kind of genocide against the prairie landscapes. It startled me when I first moved to the Midwest from the inescapable geography of the Pacific Northwest, how little Midwesterners knew of their landscape. They thought the native landscape was strip mall, which is sensible. Driving across the landscape, that's what we see. And this shocked me coming from the inescapable mountains, the ever-present ocean water of the Pacific Northwest. But because the prairie was gone, because it had been invisibilized like the native people who stewarded it, we have such little sense of the wilderness that we once belonged to in this region. In Ann Arbor, we like to emphasize the arbor, to think that what we belong to is a land of trees. And this is partly true. The Ann Arbor had phenomenal trees that shocked the European settlers when they arrived. They were astounded. They said even these trees are far greater than what you find in any English garden. Their beauty more grand, more stunning. But these trees belonged to a land of oak savanna. These six foot diameter trees grew sturdy and impressive between skeins of waving shoulder high prairie grass. They were part of the prairie landscape or they were the liminal space that led to the prairie. And being of this land, being on this land, connects us to prairies. We imagine that we belong to the ordered God of neatly placed trees and gridded farms, the God who sends the spring rains and the summer sun, and finally and fairly the fall harvest and winter rest. But we also belong to the God who hears the adversary, the God of Leviathan and behemoth, the God of the prairies, of lightning strikes and locusts. Ever more so, we belong to this God as the, as the climate changes its gentle rhythms into the more extreme swings of our own disturbances. Never more sinners in the hands of an angry God than in the time of climate change. But even in the time of Job, there were nomads who lived close to the unpredictable God and farmers who lived near to an orderly and ordered God. 
And it is not that one of these is greater or righter than the other, but simply that both exist in our world, in the landscape of our faith. And that we neglect something essential when we cling to only one of these visions of God. The Christian confession is that our God is big enough to be both, to be the God, the creator of order and the creator of unknown wildness. In wedding ourselves to lives like Job, we also deaden a part of our faith, that sense that we belong to something more ineffable and mysterious than our prosperity allows us to predict. In no longer being able to gaze on the land that European settlers first visioned when they arrived, that Native Americans stewarded for many years, we have lost something of our faith, some puzzle piece. In going into the wilderness, we gather nearer to the God that we need and the God who loves us albeit in new and unpredictable ways.